0: Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done.
2: of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow.
0: I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline Hyde's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Netflix makes a big push into live events with a $5 billion deal for WWE Raw. Full details ahead. And we stick with Netflix, pushing ahead to results after the bell and get a read on what to expect from tech earnings this season. Plus, Samsung exploring the development of a non-invasive blood sugar monitor to compete with tech giants like Apple in the race for wearable dominance all that and so much more coming up Uh, there is one main big story this morning and it is the netflix deal with tko parent of wwe sources telling us it is a five billion dollar deal over 10 years Monday Night Raw, live on the platform starting in January of 2025, but outside of the U.S., exclusivity on a number of WWE brands and pay-per-view events in new markets, meaning new eyeballs. Just last hour, I sat down with WWE President Nick Khan. Listen to this.
2: We're pleased with the deal and we love the fact that Netflix was willing to take a bet on us. As we know, they had said previously that they were not into sports rights. The good thing about WWE, it's sports entertainment, as you said before the quick break there. So we're an entertainment property as much as we are a sports property, 52 weeks a year live, consistent programming, an audience that is actually quite global. If you look at India, and India is not part of this deal. But if you look at India, we're the second most popular sport in India. If you look at the United Kingdom, we're the fourth most popular sport there. This deal will take effect in the UK. So in addition to the United States, it allows us to gain even a greater global footprint as we look to expand the business.
3: Well, Nick, I want to talk a little bit more about the decision to go with Netflix, go with a streamer versus staying with a Comcast, for example. Did this purely come down to numbers where you were going to get the better deal, or is this, in effect, a bet on where the future eyeballs are going to be?
2: Well, look, we continue to love NBCU. We have SmackDown on USA premiering this October there. We have our premium live events, formerly our pay-per-views, like WrestleMania, on Peacock exclusively in the United States. They've been tremendous. For us with Raw, it was yet another test of someone new in the space, obviously an established streaming entity, the streaming entity, if you will. It was a good bet by us, and we think a good bet by them.
3: Let's talk about ad pricing a little bit more here. Does this give you greater ad pricing power, this deal?
2: We we think so. Look, you've seen what Amazon's been able to do on their ad-supported tier. Netflix is going to have great success in that space. WWE, again, three hours a week on Raw, every week allows Netflix to monetize this deal in the advertising space in a way that has not been seen before.
0: Hey, Nick, Raw has this kind of super loyal and sizable audience, but there must be a part of this deal where you're like, okay, We need to think about the future and growing a new audience. And I wondered if there's any terms in the deal where Netflix goes away and produces a behind the scenes kind of documentary exclusive to Netflix that introduces WWE to that new audience. Think about like, uh, what am I thinking of? Drive to Survive and Formula One and the success that that had bringing a sport to a new audience.
2: It would be a mistake by us at WWE to not do that with Netflix. So assume that what you said is exactly what we're all thinking, we being Netflix and WWE. You saw what Drive to Survive did for Formula One, as you just mentioned. We think the WWE audience, already big on a global level, only gets bigger with a show like that. Okay, that was WWE President Nick Khan just in the last
0: hour and my friend Bloomberg's Katie Greifeld. For more on this, I'm going to bring in Hang Media CEO John Klein, who also served as the former president of CNN. And, John, you know live entertainment, live sports. Um, This is very interesting. I don't think anyone saw this coming, this structure of deal, uh, nor the the duration of it, nor nor the, the properties themselves. Just your reaction
4: to what Netflix has done here. Netflix has to do things like this. They have to do more of them too. And that's because what is driving streaming use among consumers is not those high-end expensive dramas that Netflix is famous for. It is free or low-cost ad-supported television, basically. It's the same shows you used to watch on your cable system. People are now streaming in droves. And what is driving that behavior is predominantly sports and also news programming. So they had to get into this space. I mean, I, I run, as you said, Hang is a sports streaming platform that lets fans watch games on TV alongside famous athletes and celebrities. And we drive ridiculously high numbers of viewers, like 650,000 per event, plus 60% of them are 18 to 44, exactly the Gen Z and and young millennials who all sports advertisers and teams and leagues want to reach. That's who Netflix is trying to reach now. Netflix is trying to launch an ad-supported tier. They had a bumpy going at the beginning it seems to have at least stabilized now. They have something like 23 million monthly subscribers now to the ad-supported tier, which is like 6.99 per month. Um, and that represents about 30% of their new signups. So that's good, but it hasn't been easy. And if you're gonna be in the ad-supported business, you have got to have sports. Look for them right. to, to try to do something in news as well, because news drives streaming behavior as well. Well, John, let's just take a look at the shares. Netflix is now
0: higher three-tenths of a percent. TKO is off its session highs, but is up 17%. So we use that to ask who got the better deal, right? We are reporting, citing sources, that it's $5 billion over 10 years. So let's say it's $500 million a year. When uh, Comcast paid $265 million a year for the rights, uh, it wasn't seen as a very good deal in
4: this instance, who got the better of it? I think they're both winners here. You know, it, it brands WWE as forward-thinking, puts them smack in the middle of the streaming conversation, gets their their, their hot property, Raw, out of the cable world. It's going to hurt USA Network. It was the number one show on that cable channel. Um, and so it's, it's great for... For them and for the future uh, growth possibilities, as Nick referred to, uh, I've known Nick for a long, long time, and he's a very savvy uh, deal maker, right. thinker about media. At the same time, it's great for Netflix because it it just pumps them with some very current product that is hugely popular across a lot of demos, but certainly among younger, um, a, a lot of Latinx viewers, uh, you know, are, are driven to WWE programming as well. And as you had alluded in your earlier interview, the programming possibilities around all the characters, you know, just imagine yeah. being able to do the, you know, to, to do their version of the Last Dance uh, documentary John. with those characters. Hey, John, sorry to interrupt
0: you. You're talking about the winners. I I just want to talk about a potential loser. I'm looking at shares of Disney that are down 1.4%. And it raises the question, where is Disney? Where is ESPN in this idea that live event, call it sports or or live entertainment, is going to go to streaming platforms?
4: And and, and they've been very vague about their streaming plans, right? They've said, look, we're we're working on a, a pivot from linear cable delivery into streaming but we're not going to have an answer on that until 2025 which is like saying forever in 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 the world of digital i mean moore's law everything uh, accelerates exponentially and and so th- they they've got to be scratching their heads and and trying to come up with a strategy that's going to work now w- what puts all of these players in jeopardy but Netflix included is the runaway behemoth that is YouTube. YouTube is by far the biggest TV network on Earth. They have something like 122 million daily users, 2.7 billion monthly users, and that just dwarfs a couple hundred million here, hundred million there for for the other streamers. And you know where right, YouTube right. is. They, they, they give you the product for free for the most part. You can subscribe to premium, but, but the vast majority of users are just accessing it for free. And, you know, here's Netflix. is still going to charge you $6 a month for the, or $7 a month for the ad-supported tier. Uh, it's not free. And, and so it, what, what all other streaming platforms have to do is figure out a way to take share from YouTube or borrow from their model better than they have been. John Klein
0: of the sports streaming platform Hang Media, great industry, quick reaction to what is a big story. Now, look, the the news came out this morning, and you may have forgotten, but after the bell, Netflix posts its quarterly earnings. So let's get to that with Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst Geeta Ranganathan. Uh, Let's park WWE for a moment, because we came into this quarter, or the quarter gone, saying Netflix could post some big overall numbers here.
5: Oh, absolutely. I think expectations coming into this quarter, Ed, are really high. And that's because management themselves during the last earnings call said, you know, expect pretty strong growth on the back of those two initiatives. I mean, we were just speaking about the advertising tier. So that's obviously a huge initiative for them, as well as the, you know, the password sharing crackdown, what they call page sharing. Uh, And so we are seeing pretty good subscriber numbers. We saw that in the third quarter. We are expecting another nine to 10 million new subscriber apps. And so then if you look at the whole year of 2023, Netflix would have basically gained 25 million subscribers. That puts them back in kind of that pre-pandemic level. I mean, last year, 2022, it was eight or nine million new subscriber ads. That's when we had that great Netflix correction. And then now in 2023, they're kind of right back on track. The question is, of course, what's next, right? What is the next big growth catalyst for 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 the stock?
0: Well, let's, let's ask that question. I mean, I watched Rebel Moon Part One, A Child of Fire, over the holidays. I won't give my opinion, but look at IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes. So then go back to WWE. You know, the content pipeline is important, but this is a deal that doesn't kick in until 2025, and news overnight that the film chief's leaving to go elsewhere.
5: Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you bring up, Ed, because what we've seen, so Netflix, as you know, a few weeks ago, Netflix kind of released this first really detailed, what they call what we watched, an engagement report, where they basically said who watched what uh, over the first six months in 2023. And what we kind of learned from that report was that only about, you know, 55% of the top titles were really their originals. 45% is licensed content. And so as we kind of think about Scott Stuber leaving, um, uh, you know, it goes to show that licensed content can still play a huge, huge role for Netflix. And that's exactly what we've been seeing. I mean, we saw that massive phenomenon with, with Suits, which kind of had, you know, this huge audience base kind of come back and, and bring interest to a show that was that old and was, you know, airing on, on a rival TV network. Um, and we've seen so many of these other titles, you know, whether they're, they're movies from from the Mac service, whether they're some of the older Max shows, all kind of finding this huge audience base in Netflix. So one thing that we've learned is is that you know just right. for them licensing old content can also work really well uh, so they don't necessarily need to make huge bets right now in the original show space but they do need to get into diverse content to really kind of attract the advertising base and that's exactly what this deal with tko is all about
0: Oh, Suits is a fan favorite of everyone on Team Bloomberg Technology, according to the chat on my screen, and it gave it a second life. Geeta Ranganathan, Bloomberg Intelligence Analyst. Standby, Netflix earnings after the bell will catch up tomorrow. Now, coming up, we're going to get the big picture outlook for tech earnings overall with Mel Lagamasino, We Family Office's CEO. And in the earnings context, we're looking at shares of both Verizon and Texas Instruments. Remember, Texas Instruments after the bell, very analog focused. Uh, Semiconductor maker, so many end markets we have questions about. Uh, Verizon, interesting performance, added the most mobile customers in two years. It seems that this kind of turnaround plan of the carrier is working, those shares up more than 5%. My goodness, what a start to a Tuesday. This is Bloomberg Technology.
6: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. And Grammarly's personalized on brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly, easier said, done.
7: Success is more than the final destination, it's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline, it's teamwork.
0: Okay, it's kind of like this tiptoe Tuesday when it comes to financial markets, equities kind of stuck within narrow ranges. Earnings is a really big factor now this week. Technology in particular. Um, Verizon was out this morning. Next up, Texas Instruments. Later in the week, Tesla, Intel. And after the bell, the big one we've been talking about is Netflix. And so at an index level, nothing crazy in terms of movement. And in the back of our minds, we're thinking about the Fed and what they will or won't do over the course of 2024. to say that joining us now to get through these markets is mel lagomassino we family offices ceo joining us out of miami we, we went into this week on at bloomberg focused very much on the magnificent seven right this idea that they were where you wanted to be in 2023 but if you look at the earnings season ahead the expectation is that that bucket of seven will have eps growth of 46 percent and there doesn't seem to be any earnings growth elsewhere other than maybe utilities do you have to be in the Magnificent Seven for the rest of 2024?
3: No. I, I think that actually we're heading into kind of a Goldilocks scenario with inflation coming down. Uh, you know, GDP growth for the third quarter was 4.9%. They estimate that it's going to be about 2% uh, for the fourth quarter. Unemployment is low. Uh, wages have risen higher than inflation. Two-thirds of the U.S. economy is consumer, uh, consumer-led, so actually I'm very bullish for the S&P 500, not just for the magnificent seven.
0: Every time that you and I have talked over the last 12 months, you actually go a little bit deeper on the technology sector, you know, into subsectors that you say, okay, I have a thesis here. Let's take, for example, semiconductors. Uh, what is the 2024 semiconductor call from Mel Agamasino?
3: Oh, I think semiconductors will continue to be strong. I think the whole healthcare sector can have huge uh, profitability and efficiency from the use of artificial intelligence. So I think what we're going to start to see, Ed, is how different sectors are going to start applying artificial intelligence, not just in terms of research and innovation, but the ability to empower their employees at their desk. And so I think that it's going to be much more product-based than the tech stocks i think it's it regular companies industrial companies consumer staples companies etc uh, have the potential to have much more productivity as a result of these new tools i think we're in the beginning we're we're in the beginning stages of what's going to be a transformational uh, technology for all of industry
0: how do you use ai every day You know, there's there's the investing side and where you can allocate capital. And then there's, you wake up and think, how do I use AI today?
3: Well, if you think about it, in in our own work, uh, we're using more and more AI tools uh, to actually take care of a lot of administrative tasks. That our very talented people were doing and now you can really leverage uh, them so that they can use their full talents instead of spending it on a lot of administrative tasks. So I think that's just a small sample of, of what AI can do to just leverage every single company and the way that they use their, their talent. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't, I'm not one of those people that worries about white collar workers losing their jobs. I think AI is going to empower and lift uh, white collar workers to do a much better job.
0: Mel, there are certain sections of the technology s- sector that are sensitive to rates, higher rates, discount the present value of future cash flows is what I say on the show all the time. And right now, the market seems to be shrugging off a pretty constant stream of Fed speak that is warning us about our anticipation at the timing and depth of rate cuts. Why is the market not listening to the Fed?
3: Well, I think we've been in this tug of war Um, because I, between what the market says and what the Fed uh, is saying for months now, and that's what caused volatility in the market, um, but I personally listen to the Fed. I think in spite of What the market would like, I think the Fed is taking its time. It's making sure that the data, that the lag effect of the interest rate rises that they put in place, uh, that they really understand what the data is saying before they they start lowering rates. But they will lower rates. It just might not be as fast as the market expects.
0: For this year, how top of mind is geopolitical risk? And you know, knowing that you look so closely at the chip sector, I, I go straight to China in my mind when we think about both the supply chain but also demand side of that industry.
3: Well, China is, I mean, China's economy is really not doing well. And I even think this latest stimulus that uh, you know the Chinese government uh, tried to do to sort of stabilize the stock market is not going to work. Uh, because there's fundamentally, fundamental economic issues in China, starting with the real estate sector, but also the finance sector. And I think the interference of the government in the, in the business uh, sector has really chased away a lot of the foreign investors. The lack of the kind of governance that we're used to seeing has chased away foreign investors. And they played a pretty big role in China. So um, so I, I think it's different with China. The geopolitical issue that I think most people worry about is actually right. what's going to happen with the US election. Having said that, we just we just did a study of what happens with every shock in the stock market, starting from World War II all the way through, you know, the Israel-Hamas situation, and the stock market reacts emotionally initially, and then six months later, a year later, it's up.
0: So, um, Mel, but I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. We're short on time, but before I lose you, I got a question from our audience that's tuned in right now if ai will help white collar workers in the us as you said what are the implications for those industries uh, that outsource a lot of work to to workforces in india for example
3: i think some of that work's going to come home i don't think we need to outsource i think it's actually going to be a huge boon for the us economy and for our friends that are closer to us i think we're going to we're going to focus more on resilience Not just cost.
0: Mel Lagomacino, We Family Officers CEO. We always go so broad when you join me on the program. I really appreciate it. Your time today out of Miami. Time for Talking Tech. And first up, Baidu's once considered one of the most valuable startups in the world is seeking to raise $100 billion in funds at a valuation of less than $2 billion to ease its financial problems. That's down from $22 billion in its last round in late 2022. Plus, EV sales growth may be slowing, but investor enthusiasm in the technology is not. Danish EV charging software startup Monta raised $87 million in venture capital to expand its business across Europe and the US. And a doctor, audio message of President Joe Biden urging voters in New Hampshire not to cast their ballots in today's Democratic primary circulated over the weekend. A fake alarmed the world's disinformation experts. A very quick check-in on the markets. NASDAQ 100 not doing a great deal in this current session, but... The context this week is earnings. Think about Netflix after the bell, Tesla to come in 24 hours, Intel later in the week. It's becoming more of a consideration for the market broadly. And there are high hopes of the Magnificent 7. The real big question is, do we see earnings growth and do we see key metrics beat when it comes to the much broader name, list of names that we have in the technology sector? Uh, another name that I've been watching closely, but we've talked about less in the last week or so is Amazon. The stock actually flatters a pancake in the current session, but a story breaking overnight in Europe the french regulator or watchdog uh, is looking at amazon and basically concerned about a system it's put in place over employee surveillance monitoring the work activities um, and work performance of uh, those employees it was a 34 million dollar fine it opened lower but you can see we paired those losses and we're now back with the e-commerce giant trading down a tenth of 1%. Now, another story in the e-commerce context, Timu is known as a destination for younger consumers. But new research paints a different picture. Actually, the Chinese e-commerce app is attracting hordes of boomer and Gen X shoppers. Let's bring in Bloomberg's boomer in chief. Spencer Soper. No, that's unkind, Spencer. Let's bring in Bloomberg's e-commerce chief, Spencer Soper. I mean, this is surprising. When I hear about Timu, I hear about it from all kinds of people. But like we suggested, a younger audience, what is the data set you got hold of and what does it tell you? Yeah, uh, basically, Grandma is addicted to Timu, so uh,
8: that was a surprise for us too. You think that a lot of these sh- these, app, uh, especially mobile-centered uh, e-commerce platforms like Timu, would attract younger shoppers who are glued to their phones, but it turns out you're seeing um, the most loyal shoppers in the in the Boomer category, 59 and older. Uh, that's data from Attain uh, that that monitors credit card transactions, and so it. And, and then when you think about it and peel back a little bit, you do see that, uh, you know, there are a lot of gaming apps. Ac- aspects. When you open the app, you almost feel like you walked into a Las Vegas casino or something. So uh, it does it does make sense that uh, older, older shoppers are drawn to it.
0: What's interesting is that uh, Timu has been operating in the U.S. for not that long, I think like 12 months or so, right, Spencer? And one of the reasons I love your reporting in the context of all these e-commerce companies is you go out into the real world and you speak to people using the platform. Uh, what did you find out there and who did you speak to?
8: Yeah, we, we spoke to one woman in her fifties uh, from Spokane, Washington out here on the West Coast, and uh, she you know, she said she was actually introduced to Introduced to it by her mother, who's in her 70s, so again it reinforced that older shopper. And you know, basically she just said, "Hey, look, there's there's great deals on here. I, I can spend freely." She made like 30 purchases, buying all kinds of things, um, vases, home goods, uh, you know, like winter hats for her children, and she also bought some soap dispenser. And even part of the fun was that she knows some of the stuff is going to show up, you know, and and just be absolute garbage, you know. And that's what she mentioned about a about her, the soap dispenser that a lot of the things she bought are quite. Nice. Nice, But one thing that looked nice on the image, when it got to her house, it was just a a piece of junk, and all she could do was laugh, because she didn't spend that much money
0: on it. All right, Bloomberg Spencer, Sofa, just terrific reporting out there in the real world, but also a key grasp of the data. And let's stick with that data from Attain and bring in Brian Mendelbaum, CEO of the Chicago research firm Attain, which mines credit card data from a panel of around 6.5 million consumers and, again, Attain, the firm behind the report that Spencer was just outlining. Brian, it's an interesting um, finding right that for ages well for 12 months we believe that timu was a hit with with younger generations you found the opposite let's start by explaining the methodology of, of how you brought the data about yeah sure um, attain is a commerce data platform that
9: uh, enables outcomes uh, both driving outcomes and measuring outcomes for brands and advertisers and unlike retailers who can only see really inside of their four walls or on their shopping experiences. Attain has over six and a half million consumers that are, with their consent, sharing over a half a billion dollars a day in sales behavior, credit card, debit cards, basket level uh, information. And with that data, it gives us an unrivaled view of how consumers are actually spending their money and their behaviors in real time across retail and every sector of the US economy, including social commerce channels,
0: um, which are what we're talking about today. So don't get me wrong, Brian. Uh, I'm a young man. And, uh, you know, sometimes when I go onto an e-commerce platform, I look at the basket size and I say, stop, just stop. Uh, But if you look at the data, the transaction size difference between somebody that that in a category I fall into and, and the boomers that Spencer was talking about it's not that different in terms of the dollar spend yeah it's not that different in terms of the dollar
9: spent it's the frequency in which these boomers and Gen Xers are spending on the platform I mean what's really surprising if you really think about it is that you would think that this would be for the Gen Z economy because they're anchored in social media, it's their primary source of content consumption, but uh, uh, in this retail e-commerce environment that's been evolving, we're going through somewhat of a renaissance, and that our data suggests that uh, digital is nuanced when it comes down to it, and that it's every facet of the economy has a different market in a different niche. And advertisers need to rethink their engagement strategies if they want to capture more market share
0: outside
9: of the Gen Z economy.
0: Brian, the data helps us understand Timu, but in isolation, have you guys got any data that that helps us to understand better Timu's performance in this market, at least against uh, other players like Amazon, but also Sheen as an example? Well,
9: our research looked at last year um, Amazon Prime Days and how Amazon was doing during the holiday season. And we saw in the, in the initial get-goes of the holiday kickoff that Amazon sales were relatively flat. And arguably, we're talking about a small base, but Team has been around for a year, year and a half, and their growth has been explosive over that period of time. Again, it's off of a small base, but we're seeing what is the remarkable uh, points around are retailers going to have the strangle, like Amazon, Target, um, Walmart, have the strangle on U.S. consumers when it comes to quick commerce? Or are new entrants going to enter the, be in the market and solve a unique need for different segments in this
0: fractured retail economy that's starting to come about? Brian, what does the real-time data tell you about the, the direction for TiMu as we move past the holidays in this early part of the new year? Um, well, let's take a step back.
9: The, it, the, what the interesting impact here is that companies like TiMu and Xi'an uh, will have on U.S. retail like Walmart and Amazon, will, they, will consumers lean on quality and brand equity and fast shipping, or will we see uh, a race to the bottom? So retailers like Xi'an, will the low prices really compel consumers to, to test this market? And the gamification that Spencer was talking about earlier, it's too soon to tell. But I will tell you from our data in real time, we are seeing massive impacts of, of Xi'an and Timu entering the U.S. market and stealing share from all parts of the generational uh, spectrum in the U.S. economy right now.
0: Brian Mandelbaum, CEO of Attain, with their own data on how Timu's doing in its first 12 months in the US. Thank you very much. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, we're going to take a look at investing in Europe with plural platform. That conversation coming up next. This is Bloomberg Technology.
6: What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop.
7: Com.
4: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
0: Okay, let's dive into the venture industry in Europe with our next VC Spotlight guest, Tavet. Henrikus, one of the co-founders of fintech companies Wise and partner at Plural Platform, which just raised a new 400 million euro fund just 18 months after its debut fund. And the the timing of of a second fund is interesting. Um, The venture industry had mixed fortunes in 2023. But just explain the rationale
10: to raise a, a new fund so quickly after the last. So we have spent the past 18 months busy investing. We've made 26 investments in some of the most ambitious European firms. And as such, we were getting ready to raise the next fund. So for us, it made complete sense to go back on the market and raise a new fund, which will continue on the same strategy. And really, what we're doing is we're looking for the most ambitious European founders.
0: Tavet, talk to me about the LPs. You know, you're a Europe-based fund. 400 million euros is sizable. Where did the money come from?
10: Most of our money came from institutional investors. A lot of them in the US, university endowments, pension funds, so the classic Tier 1 LPs.
0: And and what do you think is their motivation for wanting to put capital into
10: a venture fund right now? So what we are building is quite new for Europe. In Europe, there are very few venture funds where all of the partners are ex-company builders. I do believe that the fact that the five partners, they have all built businesses, is a key reason why people are interested in investing. And also I think we're coming to a point where Europe is really punching at its real weight. You know, We are now at a point where the number of new companies started in Europe has surpassed the number of companies started in the US, so I think the investors are very excited to see a lot of companies coming from Europe. You know, if you look at what's come from here in the past, ADN, Spotify, Wise, Klarna. Lots of very big companies have come in the past decade.
0: So where's the next big European name? You know, that list, those are kind of the darlings of Europe, right? Spotify is a unique example. Many of them focused on fintech, though. Thematically, what areas do you see opportunity in?
10: europe is a large continent and i think there's going to be a lot of different verticals that will be built here we are seeing lots in climate and energy we've invested in a company called field which is building grid scale batteries then there is lots in deep tech we have a company uh, proxima fusion building a fusion reactor and obviously we can't get on without mentioning AI and the ways that AI is attacking different verticals. Robin AI is one of our companies, helping lawyers get away from the drudgery and do more productive work. And similarly, Teton in the in healthcare sector, helping nurses be more productive. So I think we'll see successes come from a variety of industries. But I think what kind of combines them all is ambitious founders looking to build consequential businesses. Uh, Robin AI is a,
0: is a company known to us. The CEO has been on the program with us quite recently. It's interesting because Robin AI is an example of, of a startup that's taking on a giant, right? Think of the integration of their technology into existing Microsoft Office. But here in the United States, it is Microsoft, Amazon, AWS, and OpenAI leading the, 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 the charge. I always think about it as, as kind of little and large. And, and I just asked if you could assess the chances that europe has of bringing a big ai player to the fore
10: i think there is a lot of ai talent in europe you can look at some of the past geared announcements from coming from france for example about llm technology and suddenly, if you look at vertical applications you know i i do not believe that open ai can do something in every vertical so what we're looking to back is companies in a vertical that have the proprietary data And in these verticals, I am convinced that Europe can build some of the champions. Tavit, I'm
0: really interested in plural platforms. You have personnel in London, you have personnel in Tallinn. What is it like running a venture firm that's kind of pan-European?
10: How do you operate day to day? I think the nature of Europe is that it's a number of different ecosystems. So if we look at the bigger clusters in Europe, we have UK, we have Germany, we have Estonia, we have the Nordics. So it's really a question of being in touch with people in all of these different ecosystems and making sure that the most ambitious founders know that plural is a place to come looking for capital right now. Is there one particular city
0: that you visited recently in Europe and you thought there's something here in
10: terms of technology, talent, or what's being built? We have done two deals in Amsterdam recently. I think that's something which I would not have guessed a year ago. So I put that on the map as a rising star. And really quick, what were those deals? Tell me about the technology companies. One of them is VS Particle, which is a particle printer. And the other company has not yet been announced, but we'll talk about this very soon.
0: Okay, well you leave us with that that tease and you have to come back on the programme when it is announced. Tava Henrique's partner at Plural Platform. Thank you so much. Today's going viral. Oscars nominations are out and trending online. I see it trending on X in the United States. I see real-time Google trends, the Oscars nominations top of the tree, but there are some major names getting snubbed. After going viral all summer. Barbie missed some big nods. Director Greta Gerwig did not receive a nomination for directing the billion dollar film, and Margot Robbie also missed out for best actress. However, the movie is contending for best picture, and Ken actor Ryan Gosling did get nominated for best supporting actor. But I'm also looking on social media, and I'm looking on Google, and many of you making your views known on some of those Oscars snubs. Today's going viral. OK, the 96th Academy Awards will be held on March the 10th at 7 p.m. live on ABC and hosted for a fourth time by Jimmy Kimmel. Another big story that we're watching, Alibaba shares jumped after the New York Times reported that founder Jack Ma and Alibaba chairman Joe Zai have both been buying up shares in the company. Bloomberg's Isabel Lee joins me for more in New York. That is a kind of story as old as time. Uh, executives buying up shares of company gives confidence, but in Jack Ma's case, that's interesting given his current and historic relationship with the company.
11: Definitely interesting, and a lot of layers here. So we have the duo snapping up shares in the fourth quarter ever since the stock's price has plunged. We have Thai buying around 151 worth of Alibaba's US-traded shares through his family's investment vehicle, that's Blue Pool Management. And we have Ma buying around 50 million worth of shares in the fourth quarter. So recall that Ma gave up his executive chairman role in 2019, but he is still a major stockholder. And to your point, this is kind of complex, because what does this mean? Too many investors, it means that really it just reflects the belief of Ma and Tsai that maybe Alibaba's share is still undervalued. Recall that its shares fell sharply from its 2020 peak, as sharp as 80%, Ed. Alibaba's market cap right now is hovering around 175 million, billion rather, and in 2020 it was hovering around 850 billion. So that's really a huge trim there.
0: It's worth reminding the, the Bloomberg Technology audience that what we're talking about right now is a 7% gain on the US-listed shares of Alibaba or the ADR's American Depository Receipts. But it is the China tech darling, or at least that's up for debate. It has been. And behind the scenes, there has been this executive Shuffle that you and I have talked about over the last few months on the show.
11: Yes, so this gain today is the most we've seen since August. But zooming out, the stock has fallen over 43% in the past 12 months. And again, this isn't good news because Alibaba used to be the darling, used to be the crown jewel of China, but now it's fallen behind rivals like Tencent and PDD. And this is why Ma, in a rare public intervention last year posted on their public forum in his company that Alibaba should maybe course-correct, and he praised PDD for a job well done, and it just really goes to show that this is kind of like a nudge in the shoulder for Alibaba to probably do better. But Ma did end on a good note, and he said Alibaba could be successful again with hard work.
0: Yeah, I was reading the New York Times report, and there is a rationale behind the current buying. Uh, What is it, uh, Isabel, according to that report?
11: The New York Times report is saying that it's really just not Alibaba because Overall, if you look at the benchmark index of China, the CSI index hit its lowest in five years this week. And this is why Chinese authorities are mulling a package to stabilize and to arrest the stock market route. They're looking at around $278 Ed, so that's really a significant amount. And they're looking to buy mainly from offshore accounts of Chinese state-owned companies. But if you ask investors, some of them are kind of disillusioned. They're not feeling as optimistic because they said, okay, this may spark a little rebound, but it's the fundamentals that need fixing.
0: Okay, Bloomberg's Isabel Lee there on Alibaba's US-listed shares, which, as Isabel said, are currently up around 7% on track for their biggest jump since August of 2023, August last year. That does it for what was a packed edition of Bloomberg Technology. A big thank you to everyone that's checking out the podcast. I know many of you listen on your way into work on Apple, Spotify, iHeart. And just as a reminder, we are posting the podcast to all of the Bloomberg platforms as well. Uh, Two days in into what is quickly becoming... week all about technology earnings and that is what the conversation will be on this program from San Francisco this is Bloomberg Technology